Anesthesia Nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for another podcast. This is the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast where we talk about nothing but anesthesia and pain management and how we can make our practices better and safer for our patients undergoing anesthesia and dealing with post-operative anesthesia pain and all those kind of things. So today I am really excited to have our guest. Um, Doctor is a really fantastic mix small animal and exotic veterinarian practicing in Birmingham, UK. Um, he was also very, very sexily named the BVA Young Vet of the Year, which is super, super awesome. Get a little word to put on the uh, shelf and show people at dinner. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Fabian Rivers. Um, you may be following him on Instagram and seeing adorable pictures of his bearded dragon. I mean, that's why I'm on the Instagram. Everybody likes bearded dragon content, and we can talk about that in a minute. But, nerds, please welcome Dr. Fabian Rivers to the podcast. Thank you. That was a very, very kind introduction. How are you today? I am well. Thank you. How are things in the UK? Good. Manic. Um, We are absolutely bursting at the rafters. Um, You know, there's so much going on with this COVID world, dealing with a lot of weird and wonderful patients at the moment, but we're, we're managing by the skin of our teeth, we're managing. Yeah, have you guys experienced uh, the pandemic puppy boom like we have in the United States? Oh, a- absolutely. We're getting uh, Amer- very proverbially named American bullies, um, bulldogs, <laughs> Frenchies, dash huns, anything which looks good on an Instagram filter from your favorite TV personality we are getting through the door at the moment. So yeah, we're inundated. Fantastic. Yeah, we have been so busy here that we, I mean, almost every single veterinary practice is hiring right now. Uh, we are working over shifts. We are just like bursting at the seams. So um, so anyone listening, if you need a job, please apply to Mount Laurel Animal Hospital in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Hit me up if you need a job. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to follow that with, if you'd like a job at Amicus Rectory Center in Birmingham, we are also hiring. Please help me. I need help. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which I mean, yeah, if you're a uh, if you're a vet or vet tech who has an interest in exotics and you, you know, please. you like you like Birmingham, which Birmingham is pretty badass. You could take a little ride on a boat. It's amazing. Yes, thank so, you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge Birmingham fan. Um, for me, I think one of my favorite UK memories, I have a lot of really great UK memories, but one of my favorites is the train, taking the train from London up to Birmingham and just like the train ride and the countryside and it is it is another level beautiful. Um, not that, you know, America doesn't have beautiful spots, but uh, to me, you know, it's no secret to people on the podcast or people who know me online that my ultimate goal is to move to the UK and uh, live there at some point because I'm deep, deep uh, in, in, oh, huge, huge, yeah, I'm like, yeah, you guys have better chocolate, I mean, the tea, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, what else can I say? Like, you, <laughs> everything's better. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Birmingham is is supposed to, is, is the historical centre of chocolate in the UK. So, uh, you know, another brownie point for Birmingham, if I could put that in there. But, no, um, the UK is it's a beautiful, beautiful country, you know, very, very lucky. Yeah. 
All right. So let's get into it. Let's talk about your career. You know, I mean, obviously you're doing something right if you were just named the Young Vet of the Year uh, by the BVA. So let's talk about kind of because I know that you're kind of known now for your exotics care. So how did you kind of get into exotics? Is that something that that love developed before vet school, during vet school? So um, it started very early. You know, I, I do follow a line of very much in line with the, I always wanted to be a vet as a kid. You know, before I knew what it meant, um, you know, uh, I, I genuinely wanted to be uh, around animals and have a connection with animals and have an affinity to them. Um, and as I grew older, um, I only mean about nine years old, to be honest with you, I went on a trip to Kenya um, with the family and I got to have some interactions with monitor lizards. I saw some cheats on safari. And so the, the kind of doors of, of, of interest in a variety of different animals grew and was pretty ubiquitous. So it was birds, it was, it was lizards, it was reptiles, it was large animals, rhinos, everything. Um, and so when that developed, I realized that I, at home, I was very much the person who would have the ant farm or the worm farm or wanted to have a bunch of stick insects and see if anyone wanted to adopt them <laughs> at school. And it just grew from there. However, when I, by the time I got to university, I, I was faced with this stark realisation uh, that I believed that I wouldn't be able, the likelihood of me being able to go into practising to exotics straight off the bat, um, straight out as a new grad, was going to be limited because at least in the UK, um, there's not a huge amount of opportunity when it comes to exotics. You have to usually wait for something to pop up, um, whether it's an you know, internship or residency or um, even practices that see uh, an increased caseload of exotics. So I was fully prepared um, during university to go into smallies and then develop my practice and see what opportunities were open and available. What a lot of people don't realise is that I actually studied, not in the UK, I studied in the Czech Republic. And the Czech Republic has uh, a fantastic uh, university for, for exotics. Um, the person who kind of runs the whole shebang is very much a very well-known exotic specialist and has been for many, many years. And so I actually managed to get a huge amount of first-hand time with exotics at a, a university level, which I know in the UK at least, um, is very hit and miss. <laughs> so I had a, a, a keen sense of where I wanted to be, the type of things that I knew I was capable of doing. And by the time I was applying for jobs and looking for what was out there, I had that under my belt, at least day one skills for exotic stuffs. So what advice would you have to younger veterinarians or even veterinary technicians who want to get more involved with exotics care? How can they get more experience with this? So my top tip would be really based around that you don't have to be ready to go straight to an internship or lining up a postgraduate course to be capable with exotics. And I think there are a huge amount of skills that are easily transferable from any veterinary degree that will have unique value within a, a, an exotic situation. You know, a lot of the basic skills that we, we do on a day-to-day -day basis, we are extrapolating 
And so the rudimentary facets of the physiology of a lot of these animals and the basics of, you know, you know pain relief and fluids and those type of, of, of uh, interests and skill sets are very much transferable. So if you have access to people who are have an exotics background, um, you know, reach out and get some manuals, get some books, do a bit of extra reading, you can be an exotics um, person of your practice or an exotic friendly practice pretty much anywhere, you know, and, and you're only going to be limited to a certain extent by your tools, but you don't have to be limited by your um, because there's, a, there's a, just a bevy of, of information and the one thing I love about the exotics community is how ready we are to help each other and, and you know I, I, that's that's really that's really my key advice don't rush it you can get there just take your time yeah that's good advice I mean I feel like a lot of people now and maybe this is you know just kind of our social media culture Instagram culture they see people out there doing it and they just want to be out there doing it and you know for me I get people coming to me and saying like well I want to do what you're doing and I want to do this high level anesthesia and I want to do it now and I'm like yeah yo that took me like 10 years to get to like it takes a while so you you do have to be willing to like put in the work it's not going to happen overnight so definitely good advice. But if you you know want to get into exotic stuff, you know find a place that's going to nurture that, and then just take the time to to learn it. It's just excellent. And you're right, there is a really good community. I mean, the anesthesia nerds community is super supportive. As far as you know, if you have a question about anesthesia or pain management, there are exotics groups out there. There's resources so that you can you know get your questions answered and feel supported, and not like you have to jump into everything. Um, alone. Uh, It is a really good supportive community. So that being said, let's talk about some exotics anesthesia and seeing as how this is a case-based podcast. So we like to talk about different anesthetic cases to give people some practical information they can take back to their clinic and use. So since we're in the line of exotic pets, what we are going to talk about with you is rabbit anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So let's say here's the scenario that we have a rabbit that has to come in for a cystotomy and we are trying to plan through, man, our clinic is not super experienced with rabbits. We're certainly not experts, but we're going to do the best we can for this rabbit. Um, What are some, let's go through the case with you. You know, how would you approach the pre-medication? How would you approach the, you know, the stress management, the pain management with this case. And then maybe we could talk about the post-operative pain management and care as well. So, yeah. you know, what, what would your advice be? How would you handle this case? So the first thing for rabbits is managing the basics. Um, for me, things regarding to stress. Now, if you're working in a particularly companion animal situation, things with regards to stress um, is probably one of the key facets of any particular anesthesia they're going to do. You start early. And so depending on if you have the capacity, a quiet, calm area outside the smelling or visual distance or or range of um, any type of potential predators is always one of the first things that I'm always really aware of. Now, working in exotics, I have a special ward where I can stow them away quietly. But if you don't have that, then you need to make some type of dispensation with regards to that. Um, This also extends to the very much the basics, things like handling. 
Um, you know, we're very, very aware how often people can be a little bit um, standoffish and also very tense in the way that they hold or they hold in the wrong way. So having a very basic um, two-hand position uh, approach, one just underneath the chest and one just under the bum, and just transporting them very calmly from, you know, place to place, from carrier to, to cage and things of that nature. So start with the basics. Two, uh, you don't have to fast them. Um, I personally like to fast them only an hour before, mainly just so that um, if they have food in their mouth, that it, it, it's passed by that particular point. But, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't, unless you're doing something like a dental or, or something of that nature, I'm not too finicky on that particular basis. Now, if we're talking about, um, you know, uh, a cystotomy or things of that nature, now this may be a, a key, an area for contention, but I'm seeing a lot more use of methadone um, and we're starting to use that uh, a lot more in, in practice as well. Um, I find that the the response to it is is very positive. Um, and so I, I tend to give uh, methadone you know, typically even an hour before um, if I'm happy. Um, you, you know, that's a really, really good pain relief that we're using for a little bit more complicated things or a little bit more invasive things. Um, you know, I've known people for many, many years you know, use things like buprenorphine um, and as well, but I, I sometimes find that can be a little bit shaky for your more invasive procedures, to be honest with you. So methadone, one thing you should be aware of methadone, um, and this is something that I've never, ever tried myself, but I know other professionals have. If you give methadone once, do not give it again um, in rabbits, because I, I've heard that they've that on the second administration on methadone, they can and will crash. I've never tried it myself for this particular fact, but I know that it's on on, on apparently decent authority that there's been some um, methadone issues, you know, on second administration. So something to be patiently aware of. Now, if we're talking about going back to the basics, um, we always want to have uh, some uh, uh, intravenous catheterization somewhere, please, please. Um, a cephalic, you know, with a 24 gauge or a 26 gauge, depending on how you feel, or even the marginal uh, ear vein. Um, you know, we're always looking at, uh, at maintaining blood pressure and anesthesia. You know, anesthesiologists absolutely love blood pressure. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we absolutely love blood pressure. So, you know, if you can get fluids in, um, subcut fluids for me don't really cut it. You know, if you're really struggling, um, then by all means. But if you know, really, that's, that's something I'm adamant about keeping in. If you have a, a marginal ear vein, then a bit of ember cream on 45 minutes before should be enough to stop them jumping around, things of that nature. Or if you're feeling really um, concerned, a touch of midazolam at a very low dose can sometimes be really helpful for mild sedation oh. as well. So, um, where else we? So we've got things like methadone, da, 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 da. With regards to how we take them from that stage um I, i'm using uh you know low dose ketamine with metatomidine often as a way of of bringing to that point where i can intubate them oh please intubate your rabbits i will fight you i will find you i will kill you if you don't intubate and for your smaller procedures you can get away with triple com combination things but for more invasive things we should be routinely intubating and so one of these questions that we were discussing uh, earlier and what, before we even you know, got started here was talking about the fear factor of intubation. 
And, um, you know, uh, I completely do understand um, how people feel about intubation, but we're, we're going to come on to that a little bit later. So let's go back to the case. So we've got our, our catheter in, uh, we've got our methadone in. Something that I've been also told about is people often giving um, things like metoclopamide pre-op. And I, however, tend to fall, stay away from that just mainly because if you do find a, it's contraindicated if you do have um, gut stasis at the same time. Um, and if you have a painful procedure or something that's painful perioperatively, I find that, uh, you know, if you have to do anything else with regards to managing a gut stasis issue, you know, you don't want to confuse the situation there. With regards to maintenance, in practice, in your typical practice, there are certain things that you can do very easily, which I find are really good, easy ways to manage um, what is happening. I quite like putting a Doppler on the, uh, on the artery, in the ear artery, um, just as a way for even the most layman's of uh, anaesthetists, just to keep an eye on how things are going. You know, the things of the, the things of rabbits, we often lose some of our most typical ways of managing. You know, we, it's, it's a little bit, it can be difficult to check um, pallor, um, to check uh, uh, mucous membranes. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, we may not be so confident, you know, if we're using something like a V-gel, whether we're, we've got patency, we don't have cat in the grass hanging around. So the, I would I would go with, with, with really the basics. You know, um, yeah, make sure we've got a, a nice tube in, Doppler on that, that, that artery in the ear, um, and, and, you know, just go through your, your basics. Make sure you're going through, you know, your heart rates, your blood pressures, if you have access to that, and, and fluid therapy. And so, really, that's where we are in, you know, during our, 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 our surgery, um, and then post-operatively, it's really, 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 really the basics, to be honest with you. Um, I, I find with those particular situations, you know, after three or four hours of, of three to four hours post-operatively, we're usually up and eating again. Um, at that particular point, I want to be offering very palatable foods um, that we're very uh, uh, keen to get eating. And by all means, at that point, I would be putting in, uh, uh, you know, things like Loxicom. However, I was told on good authority as well that you are getting your methadone in. You don't want non-steroidals floating around those kidneys any longer than you have to. And so I have been recently giving, you know, meloxicam um, at the latter part of surgeries or um, it just so that we're protecting those kidneys. Also, something I didn't mention, obese rabbits. Obese rabbits. Please, please be very, very careful. The prognosis of um, a particular op with an obese rabbit, I guess, is uh, not always the greatest. I'm sure you've had loads of experience yourself with um, how confusing that can be. Um, you know, uh, uh, if, you know, given the context, sometimes you need to, but uh, I want people to be patently aware that if you have an obese rabbit, just to take things very tentatively, because um, anesthesia for these guys can be uh, a little bit of a ride depending on, on age and other, other factors. So don't be too hard on yourself if an obese rabbit sends, it goes a little bit over or you're not quite sure how that's going to happen. I've had, um, I've had some cases with obese rabbits go a little bit funky, to be honest with you. So I don't want anyone to be too hard on themselves um, for that particular issue. 
I think that was how I typically would go through it, to be honest with you. Um, I, you know, if I felt that way inclined, you know, you can give them maybe four or five hours post-operatively vetagesic, depending on how invasive, um, or buprenorphine, sorry, for those who don't know, um, just to make sure that you're ticking over. Again, I wouldn't give methadone twice. And, you know, twice a day, one to 1.5 mix per kg, uh, loxicon. And I think that's it. You know, uh, I know a lot of vets have also said to me they love uh, hypnorm, which is fentanyl and fluvanazone. I don't have any particular issue with that. Um, you know, I, I know it's relatively popular in the UK, but uh, I, I tend to, to go for a different approach. Um, in, in this particular case, I probably would go for a different approach. Stay away from vetagesic in this particular context, but it's great for a bunch of other things. And stay away from butorphanol, please. Um, again, in this particular case. <laughs> yes. And I think that, like, you know, luckily we both feel the same way as far as making sure you're using injectables and proper yes. analgesia, um, because I think that unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are still just masking down rabbits not intubating them, not uh, giving them an IV catheter uh, because they're just intimidated by not having the experience with them. And which is really a shame because we're, personal opinion, we're doing them a disservice if all we're giving them is, you know, a mask of isofluorine and that's it. And they're not getting additional analgesics, you know, so I know that that still happens. So if you're in a practice where that still happens, you know, maybe it's time for an all staff meeting where you can talk about you know, some new ways of doing things and some, some better ways for your patients to kind of take it mm -hmm. to the next level of pain management. Because we don't want to be putting bunnies in a uh, uh, plastic box anymore and just, you know, turning the <laughs> ISO up to five. Like, we're, we don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I, I think I've seen it done in certain practices. And, you know, the, the, the amount of times I've seen the screen and you've ever heard a rabbit really scream when it's in that light sedative period. It's absolutely, it's absolutely harrowing, you know, and, and, and breath holding and all of that malarkey, which just complicates things a thousand times more. Um, you know, that, that for me is just the opposite of what we're trying to do. Yes, 100%. So thank you so much for all of this great information. You know, hopefully people, you know, hopefully as people are listening to this and they're driving to work and they're like, yeah, I am going to stop boxing down those rabbits. We're going to start yes. using injectables. Um, for anybody who's interested, I am going to put a link to Dr. Rivers' Instagram in the show notes so that you can also see the wonderful Bearded Dragon content that I know and love so far. What is the Bearded Dragon's name? So I have two. Um, oh. I have the, 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 the morph, the more red morph um, is, is uh, Brutus. Um, and he gets more of a, he's more sedentary, so he gets more of a shine. Um, and I have one who is called Minerva or Minnie for sure. And she gets less of a shine because she's just the most grumpy bit of dragon on the planet. <laughs> no, it's great. I love all of the stuff. We love seeing the, uh, all of the exotics. Uh, we love following along on your Instagram and, you know, you know, not, not only the exotics, but you know, the real content too. I think that that's, you know, that's what's kind of nice about your Instagram. And as people know, I love and I dislike some things. I love dexmedetomidin. I dislike the influencer culture. Um, and I think that if you're just using your Instagram, you know, to put a 
cute picture of a cute puppy and sell some fig scrubs. Like, I, I don't want to be involved with that. So I do appreciate the fact that your Instagram is not only here's work, but also here's me in my kitchen being a jackass because <laughs> I am overworked and I'm tired and this is real life. And yeah. that's it, right? That's real life. That med. Absolutely. We, we need to move away from everything is just behind a kind of soft, a filter. You know, we, we're real people. We have real problems and it's okay to exist with them and, and share with them because we all have them, you know, so I agree. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rivers, for being a guest on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. Uh, this was fantastic. And we hope to have you on again soon. And maybe we, hey, maybe we could talk about bearded dragon anesthesia. <laughs> yes, that would love <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for listening, anesthesia nerds. We'll see you next time.